Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Hausman, your host for New Books in the American West. Today, we're talking with Christina Gish-Hill. Dr. Hill is an associate professor of anthropology at Iowa State University and is the author of Webs of Kinship, Family in Northern Cheyenne Nationhood, which the University of Oklahoma Press published in 2017 and which we'll be talking about today. Christina, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you. It's an honor to be with you today. Why don't we begin by having you tell us about yourself? What is your background in anthropology and history, and what brought you to those subjects in the first place? Well, I actually, I think this is a little bit unusual, but I actually came to college wanting an anthropology degree. I knew that's what I wanted to do uh, ever since I was a small child. Cultural diversity really fascinated me. I traveled all over the world with my parents, and I just knew that I wanted to be an anthropologist, but I wasn't sure what part of the world that I wanted to focus on. I wasn't, of course, I hadn't really honed my interests yet. And so as an undergrad, I really became inspired by a couple of my professors uh, who worked with Native communities in the United States, and I really got interested in Native American culture and history. And so that's why I chose the University of Minnesota for my graduate work. Uh, Their excellent American Indian Studies program was really where I wanted to be. But uh, I came out of undergrad with a degree in anthropology, but in order to be a part of the American Indian Studies program, the best program at Minnesota was the American Studies program. And so that's what I did. I went into the American Studies PhD program and there I really learned about the method of ethnohistory. And so as an anthropologist, I started getting a deeper sense of why bringing a historical narrative and historical documents to uh, work about a community's culture is absolutely vital. And so at the University of Minnesota, that's where I was also um, first did research about the Northern Cheyenne so I was invited to work on a report about Wind Cave for the National Park Service. And I was given the responsibility for writing, researching and writing about Cheyenne history and culture. And for a really long time, I'd been interested in how Native people asserted their identity in response to European and Euro-American encroachment. So how did a Native group... Uh, reflects their own identity, who they are, their own culture in a space and a time when there were so many disruptions to them being able to assert that cultural identity. And as I was doing this research uh, about the Black Hills and about Wind Cave, the Northern Cheyenne story really intrigued me. Um, It was really interesting to me, and that's because Northern Cheyenne people remained in the heart of their homeland. They remained 
in the Black Hills region. They remained in the Powder River region throughout this time period, the 1860s, 1870s, 1880s, where so many other plains groups were experiencing so much upheaval. Um, they were threatened with removal. They, Northern Cheyenne people were removed. They uh, were taken from their homeland forcibly. And yet, during the same period, they were uh, their reservation was established in the heart of their homeland uh, at the time when the U.S. government was actively chopping apart other Plains people's land bases, well, and, and people's land bases all over the country. And so I just thought, how is this possible? <laughs> uh, what happened? This is an amazing story. And I, I just didn't find the secondary sources convincing. So this is, that's, that's where I wanted to focus my research. Just as a quick aside, was that Wind Cave document that you're talking about, was that the, uh, the, the, the National Park Service um, online PDF book by Patricia Albers by any chance? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Home of the Bison. Yes, that's the one. That's an incredible yeah. document. And for any of our listeners that are interested in the history of the Black Hills region and the Northern Plains, I highly recommend that they seek that out. It's available online for free. And it's a really incredible secondary source that I myself have used countless times in my own research. So uh, thank you for helping provide that just, I guess, as an aside. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it was a joy. It was a wonderful document to help with. Yeah. And it is. It's spectacular. Patricia Albers, when she does research, she leaves no stone unturned. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I learned that quickly when I started going through that. So yeah. you, you, you touched on this a little bit, but maybe you can put a bit of a finer point on it. How did you become interested in the topic that this book is about? Interested in kinship and family in Northern Plains Indigenous societies? Yeah. So I actually wasn't at first. <laughs> I was really interested in uh, political presentations. I was interested in how did Northern Cheyenne people remain in their homeland? What kinds of political assertions uh, did they put forward in order to accomplish this? What was their role in this story? And I actually didn't realize the connection until I started going out to Northern Cheyenne and I started speaking with Cheyenne people themselves. And so when I first set out on this research, I, as an anthropologist, I felt it was really, really important to understand Cheyenne perspectives on this particular history. Archives weren't enough to really give me that perspective. And so I needed to go to Northern Cheyenne. I needed to talk with Cheyenne people. Um, and once I was able to do that, one thing that kept coming up over and over, and what really struck me, it really, uh, I guess, maybe put me in a new direction on this project, is that whenever I would bring up these histories that I was interested in with people, I would say, I'm really interested in the time that Dull Knife and Little Wolf surrendered at Red Cloud Agency, or I'm really interested in the time that... Uh, uh, two moons surrendered at Fort Keogh, and people would quickly correct me. Everybody would. They would say, oh, we never surrendered. And at first I thought, oh, <laughs> uh, how is that possible? <laughs> and I sort of ignored it at first and said, oh, well, you know, people want to put their history in the best light, of course, and so maybe that's what's happening here. But I heard it over and over and over again, and I started realizing I really need to think about this when Cheyenne people are telling me we never surrendered, what do they mean? How how do they think of that as how do they think of these moments as 
as not a surrender. Um, and of course, all of the secondary materials in the archival well, ar- archival documents talk about these things as surrenders. And so they're written by military officials. Military officials are writing, this group of people surrendered. Um, and so it was really challenging for me. But I kept listening. And as I listened to people describing what I was thinking of as a surrender, what I was really hearing were narratives about the centrality of kinship to building relationships between a previous enemy using kin dynamics. Hmm. And I can't, I can't uh, say that, oh, I was just completely so brilliant as to think of this all by myself. Cheyenne people also <laughs> helped me figure this out because they kept telling me that I needed to be thinking about family relationships. They kept telling me that I needed to focus on kinship. And I heard several critiques of other secondary sources as too focused on what a lot of historians sometimes call um, the great men approach to telling history. And so people would say, it's not just about Dole Knife, it's not just about Two Moons, it's not just about Little Wolf, um, it's about the whole community. And if you just focus on those leaders, then you're going to miss something. One woman told me flat out that Cheyenne leaders didn't make decisions for themselves, uh, that they considered all their relatives and the impacts of their choices on the entire community and other people had roles in helping them make their decisions. She said, you know, Dull Knife had a family. And I thought, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's profound. What does that really mean? So getting into the book a little bit more, uh, my first question is about methodology. Um, you take what I found to be a, a pretty notable approach in the prose of the book itself. And sometimes you kind of mm. zoom in in the text into your own experiences speaking with people. And then at other times you zoom out to what, to me anyway, is a more kind of traditional historical narrative. And this kind of in and out motion, I, I really appreciated that. And maybe that's something that's more common in 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 literatures that aren't from the the discipline of history that maybe I'm just not as used to, but it really struck me and I thought it was very effective. Can you talk a little bit about why you made that choice and what purpose you think it serves in the text itself? Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. And there are a couple of reasons that I made this choice. One reason is that I really wanted Cheyenne people who I was working with to be able to read what I was writing and to enjoy the text. And any scholar who has that as a goal knows how challenging it is because at the same time you're producing scholarship that needs to go through the review process and needs to be vetted by other scholars. And so you have to forge a uh, well-grounded argument in language that's going to pull in a non-scholarly audience. And so that was one of the reasons that I worked really hard to use this kind of prose, uh, but also as an ethno-historian with a background in anthropology, I really wanted to combine the ethnographic methods of anthropology with the archival methods of history. And so writing ethnography, ethnography is a methodology where you spend time in a community, you 
ask questions, you listen to responses, you get to know people through that process of just being in that community and participating and and having conversations, but it's also a writing style. And so that writing style really requires this rich description. Uh, and the goal is to really help the reader experience the learning process, this process of coming to understand a culture as the ethnographer experienced it. And so I'm trying to show how and why I've interpreted Cheyenne people's responses to my questions in the way that I have through that kind of rich description, <laughs> that description of my conversations with people, the questions that I asked, uh, my own confusion <laughs> about people's responses, um, and how that was a part of me coming to understand uh, what I share with my readers in the narrative. And so it's it's a way to show that interpretive process of both Cheyenne people, how they're interpreting their own history, and then my own process of interpretation. And so... Um, I think the technique, it, it it's indicates to the reader that the historical narrative that I'm putting forward is really shaped by a lot of different perspectives, including my own. And so I'm kind of hoping to make that transparent, the construction of the narrative as transparent as possible. Tell us more about the idea of kinship, conceptually speaking. Why is it so important to understanding the story of the Northern Cheyenne as a people? And how, and this is one of the, the main arguments that you make in the book, mm. and how, how is kinship, how does it offer a more nuanced and accurate view of Cheyenne nationhood than more, quote unquote, traditional nation state or tribal models? So kin-based political organization, I came to understand as I was really working and talking with Cheyenne people, with Northern Cheyenne people, is much more flexible, but also very enduring, very strong. And I would argue even stronger than nation state constructions. Nation states come and go when the unity of a nation state crumbles, then that state is really threatened. But this isn't the case with kin-based political organizations uh, like Native Nations. And uh, in the past, folks have really struggled to, I think, think about Native Nations without those nation-state understandings of political organization. And so the idea that an ethnic group uh, for example, the Cheyenne are homogenous. Everybody who is within the Cheyenne nation has Cheyenne parents, uh, and that there's this external boundary that is easy to define, when in fact that's not the case. And so instead of, as a metaphor, instead of territories on a map that correspond to a nation, so here's the outer boundary, and everybody within that territory is a homogenous group, uh, really, I think a better metaphor for what you see with Native Nations and this kinship style political organization is a spider web. So strands of relationships that are far reaching, 
and they're very flexible, but they're also very strong. And so even if a strand gets torn, it can be remade. And uh, you see that as people remake relationships. And this also explains why several different groups can access particular territories and even why sometimes enemy groups peacefully utilize the same territory because they activate relationships, kinship, actually kinship relationships that they have across those um, national uh, spaces and say, okay, we're going to negotiate a peace for a time period so that we can trade or we can both access this particular landscape. Those activating kin relationships creates a very flexible but also very strong type of political organization. Why do you think historians and anthropologists have mostly missed this central nature of kinship to the story of Northern Plains societies? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. And um, I've thought about it a lot. So first, let me say that folks haven't completely missed it. So <laughs> Patricia Albers, who's my advisor, uh, really inspired a lot of this work with her work on kin relationships and um, political organization and the flexibility that comes from that. And then, of course, John Moore has this incredible book about the Cheyenne Nation, and he talks a lot about kinship in there. And then people like Kathleen Duvall and Anne Hyde, who are these new historians um, who are writing really fresh stuff. And they bring in a lot of ideas about kinship. Ray Denali has done some amazing work about kinship on the plains. But I think the challenge is what my work is doing that kind of expands on what folks in the past have done is that I'm taking on this challenge of sovereignty. So the challenge here is that it's hard not to undermine arguments for indigenous sovereignty when pointing out the centrality of kinship because often still understandings of indigenous sovereignty have been based on nation state constructions and so there's still kind of this lingering assumption that when you're defending the fact that indigenous nations are sovereign, they're inherently sovereign, often there's an assumption underlying that, that they are ethnically homogenous, that they are associated with a particular bounded territory. And so this, of course, is a real challenge for Cheyenne because Cheyenne, in their own oral narratives, talk about their migration across the plains. They talk about their movement and mobility. And so, of course, there are places that are vital and important for Cheyenne people, but to associate the Cheyenne people, the Cheyenne nation, with a specific territory for an extended period of time is a really difficult thing to do. So if you need that to assert sovereignty, then uh, yeah. that's going to be problematic, right? And so so to move past that sort of bounded understanding of, of nationhood and yet still assert that there is this thing as indigenous sovereignty, I think that's why people have shied away from these kinship 
arguments that well and there's also an older history in anthropology of um, people basically saying that kinship that indigenous people's political systems are based on kinship and therefore they're not as sophisticated they are not uh, sort of true political institutions and then, of course, that also undermines this idea of sovereignty. So there's this interesting dichotomy um, that sounds like you're describing where, um, you know, sovereignty and and place are not necessarily linked in the story of the Cheyenne people. But at the same time, land and place and landscape are very important to Cheyenne identity. And that's a theme that comes up repeatedly mm-hmm. throughout the book. And so while you're careful mm-hmm. in the book not to at all put the Cheyenne into that kind of ecological Indian stereotype, you also don't shy away from addressing the land and places important. So can you tell us a bit about the Black Hills and the Northern Mm -hmm. Plains and their centrality to the Cheyenne people? Yeah. So I would say that land and kinship are profoundly interconnected when it comes to thinking about Cheyenne identity, but also when it comes to thinking about Cheyenne political autonomy. So... um, Place is important for Cheyenne people in the sense that this is a place where your relatives are, both human and non-human, relatives that are human and non-human, relatives that are of this world and that are connected to the spiritual world. So ancestors, people who are yet to be born, and also spiritual entities that are connected to Cheyenne people. Um And so as Cheyenne people moved across the plains, they made relatives as they moved. And so this was a way to enter a landscape where they hadn't lived before and yet be connected to that landscape. And so certainly people made relatives with other people that they met. Sometimes they adopted people into their families. Sometimes there was intermarriage. And so then you have these connections to these other Native nations who are already in a place. And those connections are incredibly valuable. They help you establish yourself in that new place. But Cheyenne people also made relatives with the plants and animals, with components of the landscape as a way to be connected to that new place. Um, And so that's a really kind of a profound connection to acknowledge a relatedness to the animals and plants that live in that space. And so those relationships, when you're related to somebody, that entails reciprocal obligations. It entails responsibility. And so just like we have respect and care for our parents and we have particular relationships with our siblings and we have obligations to maybe send presents on our birthday or something like that. Um, For Cheyenne folks, these obligations are very serious, really deep. And so not only do you have those obligations to your parents and to your children and to your siblings and to your aunts and uncles and um, your extended family and to your in-laws, but you also have those obligations to 
the plants and animals that are now your relatives. And those plants and animals have obligations to you. And so uh, you're interconnected. You build these relationships, not just with people, but with the landscape that you're moving into. Um, And so Cheyenne people made relatives in that new landscape. And Cheyenne people also talk, um, folks have talked to me about how the Black Hills and how this part of the Plains is really where they became a people. It's really where they became the Cheyenne nation. It's where they learned how to live in the correct Hmm. way. Um, I sort of like to turn things on on their head a little bit and say that this is where Cheyenne people learned how to be a civilized people. (laughs) And so they described themselves as before they came to this place, they were nomadic and they weren't always in the right relationship with each other and with their environment. But when they came to the Plains, this is where they had these incredibly powerful spiritual leaders. Um, They talk about a prophet who brought them both spiritual objects that they still have today that help um, shape their nation, take care of their nation, and also their political organization, ceremonies, uh, ways to be, ways to behave appropriately, all came from that prophet in, in the Black Hills. And so there's a profound connection to, to that place in the Northern Plains. One of the most important non-Cheyenne individuals in the story that you tell in the book is General Nelson Miles. And he's critical to that, that question of uh, surrender that you talked about in the intro a few minutes ago. Can you, tell us, yeah. can you tell us about Miles and what his relationship was to the Cheyenne in the critical decades of the 1870s and the 1880s? Yeah, so Miles is a really interesting figure in this whole history. And as I have talked to historians especially about Miles and Cheyenne perspectives on who Miles was, uh, historians have been really shocked because Hmm. historians of American Indian history have been really shocked because Miles has a really challenging uh, narrative. I mean, he he perpetrated some really horrible uh, moments in Native history for other Native peoples, but for Cheyenne people, uh, Northern Cheyenne people in particular, he developed this really interesting relationship. And so he was actually brought in um, to Fort Keogh, which is today in southeastern Montana. Um, and this was during the period of the Indian Wars on the Plains, where the United States government was desperately trying to gain control over Lakota, Cheyenne, Arapaho people, Plains people on the Northern Plains. And this had stretched through the 1860s into the 1870s and really culminated with the the Battle of Little Bighorn in 1876, which uh, 
was a really shameful moment for, to be frank about it, for the United States, uh, particularly 1876. It was the centennial of the nation, the news of this massive defeat of Custer and all of his men hit Washington, D.C. right as they were preparing for their July 4th celebration. And so it was uh, this really difficult moment for Euro-Americans in the United States. Um, And as a result of that incredible victory for Cheyenne, Arapaho, and Lakota people, the U.S. military doubled, tripled, Their effort to bring all people who were away from their reservation agencies to those agencies. And of course, after the Battle of Little Bighorn, all of these people who were not at the battle but who were in at agencies heard about this victory and said, Oh, this is wonderful. (laughs) Uh, We're going to go out to our favorite hunting grounds and we're going to enjoy the summer and we're going to hunt and we're going to camp as we always did. And we're going to meet our relatives in, in our favorite places to be. And so they did that. So even more people left the agency. So the military had this major challenge on their hands. Miles was a part of that effort. And so uh, Cook was down at Red Cloud Agency, which is today in the region of northern western Nebraska, uh, southern western South Dakota. So right on the very edge of the Black Hills, the southern edge of the Black Hills. And um, everybody knew Red Cloud Agency. They knew Cook. They had worked with Cook before. And so a lot of people, when they heard that uh, they were being told to surrender, were moving towards Red Cloud Agency. And of course, the military was also going out and was attacking villages and trying to force people south and trying to force people down to Red Cloud Agency um, or just force people into an agency. Well, Miles uh, was relatively young in his career and looking to advance himself. And so he was stationed at Fort Keogh, the commanding officer there, and was also hoping to be able to bring in uh, Cheyenne Arapaho Lakota people and show the government that he was successful (laughs) in his post. Yeah. And so he actually uh, captured... I feel like I don't have enough time to go into the story. Here's this such a rich story, and of course it's in the book, right? But he, he captured a group of Cheyenne women and children and who were moving between camps, and one of the Cheyenne women talked to him about establishing peace with Cheyenne people and told him, bring them gifts, bring them tobacco, bring them terms for peace, and they might come to your fort. And so he did that. And she went with an a, um, interpreter uh, to the Cheyenne, Lakota, and Arapaho camps and uh, with tobacco, with gifts, and with Miles' terms for peace. So this is a really great example of how... And Miles, of course, in his own documents back to the U.S. government says... This is a Cheyenne surrender. So, so he 
says that the Cheyenne people who, as a result of this, come to Fort Keogh, have surrendered to the U.S. military. But he immediately enlists them as scouts. He, he takes their horses and guns and turns right around and gives them horses and guns. <laughs> and he never uh, locks them away. In fact, Cheyenne families uh, put up their own teepees and they cook and they live uh, next to the fort. And so these young men who become scouts are not in barracks at all. Um, they're with their families. And those men, just a few months after the Battle of Little Bighorn, begin scouting for the U.S. military. And I think it's difficult to explain that action in any other way. You can't explain that as a surrender. It's not a surrender. <laughs> um, the, and I really do think the best way to explain it is that they formed an alliance with Miles. And as time went on, they fought together. They fought side by side. There's a moment that many Cheyenne point to where a Cheyenne man saved General Miles' life um, by pushing him out of the way of, of a bullet. And Miles, in his gratitude, asks Cheyenne people, what do they want? What can he do for them? And they say, we want to stay here. We want to remain in our homeland. We want to remain in southeastern Montana. And Miles then spends much of the rest of his career fighting to make sure that they're able to. It's it's it's, uh, it's really different <laughs> from from his other career with other native yeah. nations. Yeah, I, I wouldn't go so far as to call your book uh, a rehabilitation of Miles necessarily, but it definitely it definitely <laughs> right. adds some really necessary nuance to the relationship between Northern Plains societies and the U.S. military, and you know it shows that that people yeah. were were acting based on the kind of the context that they found themselves in in pretty complex ways, really. Right, and I think. And I think it demonstrates that at the end of the day, people are people and those relationships that people form with each other can actually be very powerful. And so I have no idea. I mean, maybe Miles had uh, racist understandings of who Native people were to a certain extent. I'm sure he did. Uh, it's hard to know exactly how he felt about the uh, the bloodshed that he was a part of. Um, and at the same time, he formed these relationships with Cheyenne people. Uh, he He felt that his life depended on them to a certain extent, and they he formed these bonds with people that are close relationships. Cheyenne people called him brother. And so people are complicated. (laughs) People are complicated. And those kinds of relationships are powerful. Those personal relationships are powerful. And so I I think that's really kind of valuable lens. 
Another crucial and really, frankly, pretty sad event in Cheyenne history is the Fort Robinson Massacre, which you describe, and I thought this was very well put, you described it in the book as either the tragic collapse of one plane's tribe or one of the bloodiest moments in the ultimately successful fight to retain Cheyenne autonomy. So tell us a bit about the Fort Robinson Massacre, and then if you would, could you tell us which side of that that kind of dichotomy you fall on yourself? Yeah. Yeah, so it's true. The Fort Robinson Massacre is a really sad moment um, in Plains history, truth be told, in U.S. history. Yeah. Um, reading reading archival materials about it, reading oral histories, uh, listening to Cheyenne people talk about that massacre was often really emotionally overwhelming for me. It's very difficult history. Um, and what happened, this, this involved on Life and Little Wolf, uh, who were part of the groups who came to Red Cloud Agency during this time period after the Battle of Little Bighorn. And the United States was really trying to subdue Cheyenne, Arapaho, and Lakota people. And percentage, in terms of percentages, there were very few Cheyenne people compared to the number of Lakota people uh, at Red Cloud Agency. And so removal was a really effective threat, but to remove, and there were threats to remove Lakota people from their homeland as well. But of course, the practicality of removing Lakota people to Oklahoma, um, it would have been a major undertaking. And of course, there are relatively fewer Cheyenne people. And so... In 1877, that's what the U.S. government did. They basically said, you know, you think we're kidding. Uh, We're going to remove Cheyenne people to Oklahoma. And so Dullknife and Little Wolf, many others, uh, were taken down to Oklahoma forcibly. And when they got there, they encountered an environment that they... uh, were not prepared for, that they weren't used to. Oklahoma is that region of Oklahoma, really arid, much hotter than southeastern Montana and the Black Hills, Um, different environment, different animals, different landscape, very little hunting, unlike the southeastern Montana and the Black Hills, and just a really challenging place for Northern Cheyenne people to be. And some people in that group had relatives there. And so they were okay because they were able to connect with their relatives, their Southern Cheyenne relatives. But some people really weren't able to do that. And people were getting sick. There wasn't enough food. The rations were already dwindling. uh, Southern Cheyenne Arapaho Agency and bringing in hundreds of new mouths to feed created a pretty severe food shortage. So people were in this new environment without enough food and a lot of people got really sick and um, people were dying. And so finally, a small group decided we can't do this anymore. We're going north, and that's it. <laughs> We're not going to stay here. And so they separated themselves from the main part of the agency. They actually went into the agent. Little Wolf went into the agent, and they said, "We're leaving." He said, "We're leaving. I'm. I'm going to tell you now that we're leaving. 
don't don't make the ground bloody here. Basically, don't attack us here uh, out of respect for families who are staying. Wait until we get a little ways away. And so they knew what was coming. It was a small group, around 300 or so. It might have been a little larger than that. Um, Men, women, children, old people who started to make their way north. And the U.S. military immediately sent troops, thousands of troops out after them. They did their best to get all the way north. They separated in Nebraska, Little Wolf deciding to stay out in the open country, and Dull Knife and the folks with him deciding to go to Red Cloud Agency. And the hope was that they would come to Red Cloud Agency, they would meet their relatives there, their Lakota relatives in particular, they would be absorbed into those communities, they'd be safe, everything would be fine. And so that group of people were the people who weren't as strong, who weren't as ready to keep going out in the open country. They were the folks who were tired and needed a break. Um, But when they got to Red Cloud Agency, within that year, that agency had now become a military encampment, and they did not know that. And so they were captured by the U.S. military and taken into the barracks, and life was okay for the first few months. They were being fed, and they were allowed to come and go, relatively speaking, but and the U.S. government wasn't quite sure what they would do with this group. But eventually, the federal government sent an order back that they needed to go back to Oklahoma, that they were to be taken back to Oklahoma. And the group that at that point in time said, no, we will not return to Oklahoma. Absolutely not. And so the officials at the fort tried to force them to submit, and they locked them in the barracks with no food, no water. It was December. No, the end of December, early January, no heat. So they weren't giving them wood or coal or anything like that. Um... And they had gone for days. Some people say four days. Some people say seven days without food. And eventually the group decided we're not, we're not going to die locked up in these barracks. If we're going to die, we're going to die fighting. And I think it's really interesting that Cheyenne people point out that it's the women in that group that really pushed this decision. It w- this was not Dole Knife's decision who said, okay, now you guys, everybody has to follow me. Uh, it was a group decision that was really driven by women who said, we, we don't want to just die locked up. Let's try. Let's try to get out. And so um, they had hidden their guns on their bodies. They had dismantled their guns. And so when they were captured, they only surrendered a handful of weapons. 
uh, they had dismantled the rest of them and hung little pieces of the, the guns and the children's hair and things like this. And so they reassembled their the weapons that they had and they broke the window and they broke the door of the barrack. And in the dead of night, uh, on a really cold, snowy night, and people broke out into the snow. And... Uh, of course, the soldiers woke up at the fort and uh, came out fighting. And many, many people, Cheyenne people, were killed in this effort to escape. Of course, including women and small children and elders. Um, it was a really a very brutal massacre. But I would definitely argue that, yes, it's one of the bloodiest moments, but ultimately it was part of the successful fight to retain Cheyenne autonomy. And so ultimately, this is another example of Cheyenne people refusing to surrender. Um, And they were not taken to Oklahoma. They stayed in the north, either around the Black Hills or some folks who were connected to the breakout at Fort Robinson went on north to join their relatives uh, at Fort Keogh in Montana. Another important moment in um, this story of the Northern Cheyenne maintaining their autonomy and maintaining their ability to choose where they want to live is in the 1880s and 1890s, there, the decision of many, if not most, Northern Cheyenne to take up homesteading and to take up agriculture. Can you tell us how that was a calculated decision geared toward attaining greater autonomy? Yeah. So Northern Cheyenne, people who were living as scouts around Fort Keogh, to start with, they were living near the fort and uh, would go out to hunt when they had time and their families would cook and they were just basically set up in a camp near the fort. But the fort, and they were also receiving rations and they were receiving um Payment in their job as scouts, but the fort was a little overcrowded, and uh, people really wanted to remain in that region because Fort Q is really close to Powder River region. Um, it was really a central, important, valuable space, camping, hunting place for Cheyenne people. And Miles had made this commitment to help Cheyenne people stay in their homeland. And so he, along with other uh, people who were working with Cheyenne people at the fort, started encouraging people to move down the Tongue River, move along the Powder River, move into that landscape, and actually take up homesteads. And so there was, after the Homestead Act, there was an Indian Homestead Act specifically for Native people to take up homesteads if they, quote-unquote, dissolved their tribal relations. <laughs> um, but, which that's interesting, yeah. right? <laughs> but they had the opportunity to uh, acquire land through the same mechanisms that other people did through the Homestead Act. And so Cheyenne people were actually 
doing that. They were going down to this territory that they loved to camp in, and they were staking out homesteads with the help of a couple of people at the fort who basically showed them how to do it. And they built cabins, and they began to farm, and of course they were hunting in that region, and so they were becoming pretty self-sufficient with scouting, with their gardens and their farming, and with hunting. So they were selling uh, pelts, and they were selling their agricultural produce, and they were also scouting at the same time. And so it's really these homesteaders who, uh, first of all, allowed people who were connected to Dull Knife, Little Wolf, Little Chief, these other people who were forcibly removed to Oklahoma, as they came north, they had relatives that they could join in the heart of their homeland who were homesteading there. So they were able to join them even before the reservation was established. And so then in 1884, when the reservation gets established, um, around that whole conversation, Miles is actually testifying before the Senate and saying, look, these people are living in this area successfully, um, quote unquote, in the way that Euro-American people believe that Native people should be living, quote unquote, successfully. We should encourage their presence on this landscape. We should allow them to remain here. Threats, however, to the land base of the Northern Cheyenne and to the reservation, they don't end in 1884, though. And really, the the story of the rest of the 19th and even the beginning of the 20th century is the story of the Northern Cheyenne people fighting to retain their land against new threats. What are some of these threats and how do the Northern Cheyenne ultimately end up retaining their autonomy? Yeah, so... The the uh, so the reservation, the Northern Cheyenne Reservation, the first boundaries are established in 1884, but that land wasn't carefully surveyed, and so so uh, that left the reservation open to all kinds of challenges. And um, this early reservation was pretty small, and it didn't include and included people living along the Rosebud, but it didn't include people who had put homesteads along the Tongue River. And so the question between 1884 and 1900 is, what happens to these Cheyenne people who have homesteads along the Tongue River? And this is actually also where the Catholic mission of St. Lambray set up, was along the Tongue River. And so before Cheyenne people in that region have an agent, before they even have a reservation, before they're being served in the, by the U.S. government in that way, there's a Catholic mission there who is providing a little bit of education, who um, is, of course, providing missionization, <laughs> um, and who is kind of providing other resources for the Cheyenne people who are living along that river. Um, and even folks who are living further west. And so also during that time period, you have non-native homesteaders moving into the landscape. And it's a really 
if you ever go out there, it's a really lush landscape uh, in the middle of pretty arid high plains. And so somebody once told me there were over 500 natural springs on the Northern Cheyenne Reservation. Um, Yeah. (laughs) And so it's this lush landscape. Um, I mean, this is why Cheyenne people had been camping there for generation after generation. And so, of course, it's attracting um, non-Native people, too, particularly for ranching and a little bit for farming. And so then the issue is, well, what happens to these Cheyenne homesteaders who um, have their lands along the Tongue River? And this is so then what you see ultimately is in 1900, the expansion of the reservation all the way to the Tongue River. Um which is really incredible because during that same period of time, a lot of other nations are losing land through allotment. Um, But for Northern Cheyenne, you see that expansion. And at some level, it's homesteading is part of this. And so people like Miles and other officials in the government are arguing, look, these Cheyennes, the Cheyennes, who in 1876 defeated Custer at the Battle of Little Bighorn, are now farmers, uh, are now homesteaders. We should support this. They're, they're, they're this sort of model that we should hold up and we should support. Of course, there were arguments on both sides, and it was a pretty vicious debate. And it uh, uh, it's pretty interesting that actually the expansion did happen. But that didn't end the threat to the Northern Cheyenne land base. And so um, Cheyenne eventually was surveyed and actually allotted. Cheyenne people chose to allot in 1926 because they were afraid that as an executive order reservation, the president would actually be able to dismantle the reservation. And a few years later, there was a Supreme Court case that ruled that no, an executive order reservation can't be dismantled by the the president of the United States. But when they decided to allot, that hadn't happened yet. And so I think this is very, uh, it indicates the political savvy on the part of Northern Cheyenne people that they really had a sense of what was possible and they were trying to prevent that kind of outcome. And so they, if you allotted your reservation, then the executive order reservation was protected. You couldn't dismantle a re, an executive order reservation that was allotted. So they elected to allot, and they had 25 years of protection under an allotment act that they actually helped write specifically for their own reservation, um, which is also pretty pretty incredible um but then of course after those 25 years people were allowed to sell their allotments and so then in the 1950s Cheyenne land was again under threat um and the tribal council had to work feverishly in order to prevent uh incredible loss of land and so what the and you can read about the details of this but what they did is they put together um, a pot of money in order to buy land that tribal members wanted to sell. And so today, the Northern China Reservation, even though it went through allotment, 
the uh, something between 94 and 96 percent of the reservation remains in Cheyenne hands today, which is really incredible. Uh, a lot of other communities are not so lucky. So in a lot of ways, this is a pretty difficult book to summarize. It's readable, <laughs> but it's also it's also complex and it's wide ranging and there are many characters within it. But with that said, if there was one takeaway you'd hope readers could gain from reading Webs of Kinship, what would it be? So I would say that what I really want people to walk away with is a sense that Cheyenne people, and I really suspect that this is true for lots of indigenous people, but that Cheyenne people hold reciprocal relationships based on responsibility and respect in a higher regard than the kind of individualistic uh, rights-based relationship that citizens of democratic nation states often really value. And I really think that um, an understanding of, of this indigenous perspective would go a long way in repairing relationships between, um, well, between nation states and nation state actors and indigenous people, actually. So, Christina, now that this book is out and sitting on bookshelves across the country, mm-hmm. do you have an idea of what you are going to be working on next? Do you have a next project in mind? Yeah. So I'm always busy. <laughs> huh. um, I'm really interested in this idea of reciprocal relationships. And uh, I was so moved by uh, gaining an understanding of what kinship Means for Cheyenne people and this uh, profound respect and sense of responsibility towards reciprocity, reciprocal relationships, not just with family members, extended family members, with ancestors, with uh, the unborn, those yet to come, and with uh, non-human kin. And so being in Iowa, uh, I've come to learn an awful lot about uh, agriculture, and I've started getting really fascinated to think about how indigenous uh, agricultural practices, indigenous growing practices, are an extension of those reciprocal relationships and are also understood as kin-based relationships and what does it mean to use this idea of responsibility reciprocity in your relationships with all of your relatives including non-human relatives and so this time around I want to think about that instead of thinking about political relationships between uh, nations I want to think about relationships between people and plants but through that same lens that sounds great. And it sounds like a really good example of how easily one project can spawn all sorts of other other projects just coming coming out from it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and uh, 
to be able to expand this because that's something I wished I could have done more when I was thinking about the Cheyenne question. Um, I could have really got gained a deeper understanding of what these relationships mean with uh, non-humans, with plants and animals. And so now is my opportunity to explore that. <laughs> well, we look forward to reading it. Thank you. Christina Gishel is an associate professor of anthropology at Iowa State University, and her new book is Webs of Kinship, Family in Northern Cheyenne Nationhood, which came out last year with the University of Oklahoma Press. Thanks for joining us today, Christina. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> 